Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series today, Make It Count. So turning your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to chapter 4, verses 2, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Christian Leader's First Task. There's a story of a preacher who was having his car fixed by a mechanic in a local garage. And when he received the bill, and it was high, he said to the mechanic, can I have a special deal? You see, I'm just a poor preacher. And the mechanic replied, you got that right. I heard you last Sunday. <laughs> well, you know, there are a lot of funny preacher stories and jokes. You know, preaching can be both joy and agony. It can set the stage for a successful ministry, or it can be that dreaded moment of every week. But as every preacher knows, you're barely done on a Sunday, and already your mind is taken up in, what am I going to say next Sunday? And years ago, one young preacher called me and said, do you know this, this month has five Sundays? I said, you're going to be amazed at how often that problem actually shows up. You know, everyone knows that church is about so much more than preaching and teaching and learning of Scripture. You know, church involves fellowship and forming of bonds of friendship. It involves living lives of accountability, of being our brother and sister's keeper. It involves serving one another and also serving the community in which we live. It involves celebrating the Lord's table and celebrating when the new in Christ are baptized. It involves praying with others and singing to the Lord and discovering spiritual gifts, learning how to use them. I mean, above all, it involves learning to trust in Christ in all things and learning to be like him. So many things are important, and yet the preaching and teaching of the word comes first. And that's because everything else we do is distorted if this one thing is deficient. And the passage we're about to study was written at a very important time. Let's put the date of the writing of 2 Timothy between 64 and 67. So why is that important? Well, for one, the apostles have been dying. James, well, he was the first apostle. He was beheaded some 20 years earlier. The apostle Philip had been crucified 10 years earlier. Matthew, the author of Matthew, according to tradition, had been killed with a weapon that had a blade and a spike in it some five years earlier. Others were dying as well, all as a result of persecution. It's very likely that both Paul and Peter died in the very same year. Peter was crucified. Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, could not be crucified, so he was beheaded instead. In short order, only John of all the apostles would be left. So what am I saying? Well, this letter represents the time of great transition. The era of the apostles and planting of churches and raising up leadership and giving theological direction and guiding the church, that apostolic era that was now coming to an end. And the real question was, who would lead the church now? Given the ongoing nature of persecution and the rise of false teachers and the disagreements in some churches, what would happen next? And with that in mind, let's begin by reading today's text. I'll start with 2 Timothy chapter 3, 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's start with the first statement. Timothy has been learning the scriptures from the time he was a child. Remember that although his father was a Greek, not a man of faith or a man of scripture, yet his mother was a Jew, 
and both his mother and grandmother ensured that he was studying scripture. They were laying a foundation for his future. By the way, it's a lesson for all parents today. You are your children's first education in scripture. You need to ensure that your kids, when young, hear you reading the scripture to them. And you need to also ensure that when they're growing older and can read, that you help them with a reading regimen in scripture. I love it. You know, I'm a grandfather now, and and I love to quiz my grandkids on their scripture learning. I had a conversation with one grandson the other day. So why is the book of Ruth in the Bible, I asked it. He, without hesitation, said, well, Ruth is the mother of Obed, who's the father of Jesse, who's the father of King David. And he didn't look it up. He knew it because it was a solid foundation laid in his life. But it was only the foundation. See, the building is not yet complete. And Paul's concerned that Timothy must continue in what he has learned. That is, he's never to stop learning Scripture. I mean, no doubt, as Timothy had been trained by Paul, a man who was certainly one of the leading rabbis of his day, thoroughly versed in the First Testament, Paul would have brought that training into Timothy's life. Timothy would have watched Paul consumed with the Word, and Timothy would have learned Paul's method of study. Paul's telling Timothy he must never cease, as long as he lives, to grow in insight into the Scripture. His depth of knowledge must constantly deepen. Notice the outcome. It's found in verse 15. The Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I mean, Paul doesn't think it's possible for Timothy to grow in his salvation and in his ongoing trust in Jesus, and in the wisdom by which he must live his life outside of an ever-increasing depth of Scripture knowledge. So let me get practical. You know, first, Bible reading. You ought to be reading the Bible through cover to cover every year. That's not hard. It's easy. It doesn't take a great deal of time each day. Second, you ought to learn the tools of inductive Bible study, that is, simply observing the key features of any given text, understanding the context, and knowing its meaning. You should be memorizing important texts. You should have a method of application. Now, that's not simply an individual matter. I mean, churches themselves can train their entire congregation to do this. Home Bible study groups should be a key area where trained leaders are training others in their understanding of Scripture. Well, very well. Timothy is to be a lifetime learner of Scripture. And having said that, Paul then gives, in verse 16, one of the most concise doctrines of the Scripture. Look at it again. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. So let's stop here and make sure that we understand that the word Scripture, the Greek word is graphe, which means writings. It refers to the sacred writings. Now, at this time, that is, as Paul writes 2 Timothy, he's referring to the First Testament, that is, the first 39 books of our Bible. That's the Bible Jesus used. That's the Bible that Timothy was trained in as a young boy. Now, that fact has led some to argue that that Paul must then only be referring to the First Testament. After all, the New Testament, although it had been partially written by now, hadn't been completed. And so the argument goes, since the church had not yet determined which books were inspired, it must then mean that the claim that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that could only refer to the First Testament. But But is that the case? Well, no, it's not, and I'll show you why. Go back to 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. There Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, when Paul says, The Scripture says, he then quotes 
two scriptures. The first is from Deuteronomy 5.24, and then the second, hear this, it's from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. That means Paul in the mid-60s was not only aware of the book of Luke, he was already then calling it scripture. I'll go one step further. Peter was just as aware that scripture was being written. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, listen now, as they do the other scriptures. You know, Peter says, I know Paul's writing scripture. Paul says, I know Luke's writing scripture. Indeed, all the writings of the apostles and prophets were being recognized as scripture alongside of the First Testament. And says Paul, know this, all this scripture is breathed out by God. Yeah, human authors wrote it, but behind that is the very breath of God. Yeah, humans wrote it, but it was brought about by God. It therefore is God's word, and that's the key. To all those who say, I wish that God would speak to me. Well, listen up, Bubba. Dust off your Bible. Pull it off your shelf. Read. These are the words of God. This book is your lifetime project. And Paul's still not done. Now, these words, he says, are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, clearly, Paul is addressing Timothy who will make the use of Scripture to be the central part of his ministry. What is the Scripture to be used for? It's profitable for teaching. That is, it will be of great advantage to Timothy when the apostles have all gone and when the writing of Scripture is complete to make it his business to be teaching God's people Scripture, helping people to understand Scripture, helping people to see the relevance of Scripture to their lives so that they are aware what God wants them to know, to believe, to apply, and to submit their wills to, to know how they are to live. Yes, it's profitable for God's people if you teach them the Scripture. February is International Ministries Month, a time to celebrate the ministry work being accomplished in partnership with our friends in India, Sri Lanka, Curaçao, and beyond. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to providing ministry support, Bible teaching programming, resources, content, and international pastors' Bible teaching conferences impacting hundreds of national pastors. Most recently, funds were provided to Back to the Bible India to translate, produce, and distribute thousands of Dr. Neufeld's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation, throughout India in 10 different languages. God is at work through these opportunities, and your gracious gifts have provided the means to partner in ministry far beyond our borders. This month, would you consider an additional international ministry gift to help reach the 2022 International Projects goal of $50,000. Back to the Bible Canada has a global vision the size of our global mission. Thank you in advance. Call today with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Paul then says, the scripture is also profitable for reproof, that is, for rebuking. You know, to the unspiritual mind, the idea of rebuking, that seems unwelcome. I mean, who wants 
you know, to have their faults and mistakes and sins and their misdeeds addressed. But here's the answer. See, all who seek to live godly lives in Christ Jesus deeply desire this. Lord, we pray, show me my hidden faults, expose my errors so that I may, through the Holy Spirit, repent and turn from them. Now, I have a memory from my days as a pastor. You know, a woman who had now been in Christ for some years, you know, was talking to me about how she first came to the church. She said to me, you are preaching. And it was the first time I had ever heard a sermon. And I left the service and I was very angry and that made me curious. I asked her why and she smiled and she said, well, you seem to be talking directly to me. And I was mad because I was convinced that my friends had told you what was going on in my life and now you are talking about me in front of everyone. And we both had a good laugh together about that. But that's the nature of scriptural rebuke. And I don't mean, you know, a pastor who's just waiting to give his people the rebuke of their lives. I mean, I don't mean that at all. I mean a faithful exposition of Scripture, explaining what stands written, and then making application. That method is often the rebuke that the Holy Spirit uses to awaken people of their sins and of their need for Christ. Well, next Paul says that Scripture is profitable for correction. Well, the idea of correction means that it helps people with their false ideas or misunderstandings of things. Look, we all have ideas about God and ourselves, the nature of righteousness, what's pleasing to both God and man. But so many of our ideas are borrowed from faulty sources, sometimes from parents who didn't know any better, other times from our culture or something someone has once taught us. I mean, things that we now believe to be true, but they aren't. So let me suggest one example. I remember once teaching from Acts 17, 24 to 25. It says, The God who has made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. I then went on to explain why God is never needy, why he never requires any service from us. He doesn't need us even while he still loves us. Well, after the service, a man approached me. He was very upset. He had for many years been taken up with the arrogant notion that he was helping God out. And he told me he didn't appreciate what I said. Well, I responded by saying that I hadn't said it. I was merely reading the scripture and explaining it. It was God who said it. I also informed him that he was simply disagreeing with the scripture. He was dumbfounded. He had wanted to argue with me, but I wasn't biting. Yeah, I thought, let scripture correct him. I can't, but since Scripture is the breath of God, and since God's breath is powerful, let it be God who corrects him. All right, the Scripture is good or of great profit for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, and then finally, for training in righteousness. And the idea of training comes from the world of parenting. It's what parents use to develop the character of their child. Johnny, don't throw your peas on the ground and shout no! And over successive and repeated training of the same lesson, eventually Johnny's character begins to develop. And that's what Scripture does to every child of God. Those trained in Scripture grow in righteousness. That is, they know how to resist sin, and they know how to embrace those things that delight the heart of God. And then Paul adds just one more line. It's found in verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the man of God here, some argue, might, well, might refer to Timothy himself. 
I mean, once you commit yourself to the Scripture as a constant learner of Scripture and a constant applier of Scripture, and in Timothy's case, a constant teacher of Scripture, you can, as a minister of the gospel, be well-equipped for every good work. You're in great shape. You're an effective pastor now. Of course, that's the definition of the effective pastor, but it's also the definition of the effective believer, regardless of the role that God has called you to play. So, having set the stage, Paul now launches into one of the most famous passages in Scripture, and it's directed at all who are given the charge of leadership in the local church. So I'm reading 2 Timothy 4, 1-2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now those words, I charge you, those are the words of command. It's, it's not a suggestion or a word of advice. This is an imperative To fail to do what comes after the charge is to stand in direct disobedience to God himself. Now, notice where the command is given. It's given in the presence of God the Father, in the presence of Jesus the Son, our Messiah. Timothy is to understand that the command is of such a serious nature that it comes directly from the Father and the Son, and that the Father and the Son are watching Timothy to see that he is obedient to the command they have given him. And it's for that reason that every single minister of the gospel must hear these words. Realizing the nature of the hour in which Paul writes, a time when he and the apostles would no longer be there, he summons Timothy, and by so doing, every Christian leader is also summoned before God's throne room, and they are held eternally accountable. All Christian ministers must stand before the Father and the Son in the final day. There is a judgment mentioned in the Bible, and it's a judgment for believers. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And the we in this passage refers to we believers. There's a judgment seat that all believers will stand before in which we will give an account. Now, just to heighten the importance of Paul's command to Timothy to preach the word, let's just remember that there's an extra severity in what's being communicated here. You remember James chapter 3, verse 1? It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So please hear Paul speaking of the severity of what has been called the bema throne, the judgment throne for Christian leaders, if they will not give themselves to preaching the word. See, in light of the fact that the apostolic era has ended, Paul wants Timothy and all Christian leaders to understand they are to preach the word. They are to learn their principal task, and that task could not be more important. Over the years, I've sometimes wondered about pastors who give themselves to administration and counseling and attending board meetings and going on missions trips. I mean, none of these things are bad. That is in themselves, but they're often done by neglecting the main command. Nothing in the Bible that says, Pastor, you're going to be judged by God on the basis of how many people in your congregation you've visited and counseled or by how many meetings you've attended. But here is a passage that says you're going to be judged on the basis of how you handled the word. So please don't misunderstand. Other things must also be done. I know that. In some churches, these other tasks can be assigned to people who have been gifted in other areas. I mean, why is visiting the sick only done by the minister? 
Are there not others who can perform this? Why withhold them from doing what the Holy Spirit has gifted them to do? No, let's release all the gifts among all of God's people and let those entrusted with preaching and teaching the word make that task their first and foremost task. The task couldn't be more clear. Look at the first half of verse 2. Preach the word. Yeah, the task couldn't be more clear. The Greek word for preach can also be translated as herald. That is, herald the word. And in the ancient world, a herald was someone who was called to proclaim the message of someone else. That is, a herald never proclaimed their own message. They proclaimed the message, for instance, of the emperor. Every preacher must take that to heart. See, when you stand in a pulpit, it's not a matter of what you think about any topic. Indeed, you don't even get to choose the topic. You are a herald of someone else. So when Paul says, preach the word in chapter 4, verse 2, he's speaking about the word that he said in the last chapter was the scripture, the breath of God, the infallible, inerrant speech of the Most High God. The book, which is a complete record of God's word, is to be studied, understood, proclaimed by those who have been called by God to do it. And here's the tragedy. All throughout the history of the church, there has been a temptation of Christian leaders to abandon this one function. In the Middle Ages, the Eucharist replaced the preaching of the Word as the center of the church. Today, many pastors give themselves to an endless array of spiritual topics rather than preaching the text of Scripture. I know of one pastor who regularly canvasses his congregation for topics that they'd like to hear preach, and then he preaches what they want. Other pastors are encouraged to preach to the felt needs of the hearers. Still others proclaim their lifestyle preachers. On and on it goes. Listen to the command. Here's the charge. Preach the word. To fail to do so is treason against the God who commanded it. The congregation needs to be made wise unto the things of salvation. Never neglect this one thing. Thanks for your message today, John. You know, I think one of the issues of the church today is that while we take everyone else's word about the Bible, rather than study it for ourselves, do you think it's critical that the individual Christian be a student of the Bible? Yeah, individual Christians, uh, believers uh, getting together in Bible studies to do serious Bible study work, all that stuff is very important. We've got to know the text of Scripture more than simply what other people say about the Scripture. It's vital to our well-being. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Make It Count, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent, trustworthy Bible teaching to Canadians. The result of faithful Bible teaching is thousands of lives being encouraged, challenged, even transformed from coast to coast. What is accomplished can be attributed to people like you who share a heart for the Bible, but also those who share a heart to provide Bible teaching resources beyond our borders. Partnerships around the world ensure that we do our part to sow God's Word through Bible teaching programs, print resources, and Bible teaching conferences beyond the confines of country, culture, or language. February is Back to the Bible Canada's International Ministry Month. 
Your one-time gift toward our $50,000 target or considering becoming an international monthly partner would do so much. To give or to sign up for monthly partnership, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.